This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 79 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Matt Van Horn, the co-founder and CEO of June. June is a do-it-all smart oven that is 12 appliances in one, dedicated to bringing intelligence and ease to the tools you use in the kitchen. Acquired in January 2021 by Weber, the largest manufacturer of grills, June's mission is to use the power of technology to make cooking easy for everyone. In this episode, Matt shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in the Pacific Palisades with parents working in the entertainment industry to working in business development for Dig and Path to starting June in 2016. He talks with us about the value of equity, how to hire for A players, and why he almost missed payroll and was on the brink of losing it all. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe or text me at 310-510-6044 to enter to win free products and get special discounts from some of your favorite brands. So shoot me a text, say hi, or tell me your favorite brand, and we'll try to hook you up. I'm so excited to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your amazing entrepreneurial journey, especially in building June. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So where are you from originally? So I was, was born in New York, but I'm, I'm not a real New Yorker. My parents are, though. They're real New Yorkers. When I was about three years old, they moved out to Southern California. And so I grew up on West Side Los Angeles, so Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica area. Oh, cool. So you are kind of an LA native. I'm here in LA myself. Excellent. Where, where are you? I'm in Woodland Hills, actually, right over to Benga Canyon. What about you? Nice. The, the 818. Right. I'm, I'm in Seattle, Washington now. Great. So as a kid growing up in Los Angeles, I actually just had a kid. So he's going to be growing up in LA. What was it like growing up? And were you entrepreneurial as a kid? So... As, a, as an old kid, maybe, but as a young kid, definitely not. 
Uh, actually, no, I can think of, I remember my sister used to do these dance recitals as, as a kid. And I would go out there, there were no like flowers for sale. So I would cut a bunch of my mom's flowers. So the profit margins are pretty good because I'm just cutting flowers from the garden. And then I would kind of mostly put my mom to work. Like, Thanks, mom. To kind of put together these beautiful bouquets because I didn't really have that skill. Delegating at would... such a young age, even to your own mom. <laughs> and then would stand outside of my sister's dance house. I remember I charged a lot of money. Like flowers should have cost like $5 and I was charging like $20. And I remember people were like giving me weird looks like, what? You think you could actually charge that? I'm like, well, is your kid going to have flowers? After that recital? <laughs> exactly. Unless you were prepared, you probably want to spend $20 right now. They're paying for the convenience. Exactly. <laughs> so smart. How'd you get that idea? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, my, my mom was always pushing me to do kind of creative different things. And somehow that, that came up and materialized. So is that kind of when you learned about entrepreneurship and you're like, oh, I want to keep doing cool stuff like this? Or when did you kind of connect the dots with that being entrepreneurship and that's actually like a career or job that you could have later on so yeah so it was in high school and what's, what's interesting so my both my parents are are in the the film and television industry and so they're they're producers my mom worked on seinfeld my dad worked on crocodile dundee movies day after tomorrow independence day and what's what's really interesting is so i again i i grew up fairly well off with my knowledge of the world today but back then, in my bubble of Pacific Palisades, I had like no money relative to the fancy people around me. And it always confused me. Like, again, I realize now we grew up very well off. But in the Palisades, we were not well off. We lived in a one-story house. We did not have a pool. We did not have a gated community. And I, I was always confused by this because I'm like, hey, aren't you? and people always had these expectations of like, oh, producers, like you must, your parents must be Jerry Bruckheimer, right? And I kind of dug in and I was like, mom, dad, like why, obviously you guys do very well, but like, what's the difference between you and a Jerry Bruckheimer, et cetera. And I kind of, the biggest difference that I learned was actually equity. My parents were kind of like the highest paid people on the show that didn't have the, necessarily have the, the equity. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. And so I kind of was like, what's equity? What is ownership? What are these things? Like you hear about these people that become producers and negotiate this certain percentage or these actors that and actresses that get this certain percentage of all everything. And it just made me kind of obsessed with this concept. And so I started thinking about it more and more and kind of made me realize, okay, I don't want to go in the film and television industry. That's not for me, but started to become obsessed with different entrepreneurs. Mark Cuban was one that I, I love that he started a internet 1.0 company, broadcast.com, and then sold and became a, an eccentric NBA team owner and was Jewish. I'm Jewish, so that, that was appealing to me. And so I just started reading lots of books. One of my favorite books was a book called uh, Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi, and, uh, which kind of laid a lot of the foundation for a lot of my thinking about the world. And later, Keith became a, a mentor to me and got to spend some time with him, which was amazing. How do you summarize the book that Never Eat Alone? What, what was the biggest takeaway for that? I think one of the, the most powerful of, of Keith's lessons is relationships are all about adding value. Like, how do you add value to someone's life when you're trying to meet someone? Because like 
a lot of people just say like, Ooh, I want to get a job at Apple. Like I want to reach out to an Apple executive. They want to like take, I want to take that job from that Apple executive and make it my own. Right. But how do you actually add value to that Apple executive that you want to potentially work for or, or hire? And so I'll give an example of how I kind of use Keith's strategies against Keith in a way. So I, I never met Keith before. I'm, started reading his book, I believe in high school, maybe early college. And I saw he was going to be at the same conference I was at. And again, the principles of the book is like, you have to add value if you want to meet someone. Right. And so I'm like, okay, Keith's one of the most famous networkers in the world. How the heck am I going to add value to him? And so <laughs> right. one of the chapters is, it's much better to get a warm intro than a cold intro. So mm-hmm. at the time I was working at a startup called Dig. And one of the board members of Dig, who's also on the board of Facebook at the time, he was connected to Keith on LinkedIn. I was like, hey, can you introduce me? And he kind of said yes, kind of said no. Was he like, why? <laughs> he, no, he just, he gave me Keith's email address. So he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't know me well enough to right. like send the intro, but he wanted to help a little bit. He's on the yeah. board of the company I work for. So instead of just taking it, I hit forward. I'm like, hi, got your email from, from David Z. That's amazing. Uh, I love that. One of, one, of, one of my board members who I think met once and doesn't really know who I am. And then it's like, okay, so I made a, tried to make a cold opening, a warm one. Right. And then the next thing. That's like a lukewarm intro. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> lukewarm, you know, it's like, it's like, here, go email him yourself. But then you're like, no, I'm still going to use your name as credibility and just forward this email. It's, uh, it's hilarious. Yeah. So, and then I was like, okay, how do I add value to Keith's life? And I'm, you know, have done nothing interesting so far other than I, you know, 22 year old with a job at. I dig and I'm trying really hard to meet as many people as possible and learn as much as possible. And so I, I offer two things. I'm like, one, I was like, Keith, I don't know if you're familiar with the Twitter suggested user list, which is like the best place in the world to be at this time in like 2008, 2009, whatever this was. And, but we're about to launch the same thing for celebrities on dig. And I would like to make you a featured celebrity on the automatically suggested people. And then Two, I noticed that two of my friends, uh, people that I know are going to be at this conference. I don't know if you know them, but they're Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Would you like an intro in advance so you could meet them? And he, he replied within, I think, 15 minutes. It was amazing. And he said, this is one of the best email intros I've ever received. I arrive tomorrow night. Come drink wine in my hotel room. And I'm just like, what? I'm, I'm going to to have wine and Keith Rossi's hotel right room. we're BFFs was, already oh my god it's happening and, <laughs> and I was totally trying so hard not to, to fanboy out but I, right. I was uh and then yeah we, we've become friends we've hosted dinners together so you had wine and, you went and had wine with him how was that yeah it, it was cool it was awesome it was surreal it was very bizarre were you like leaving that meeting like what just happened totally and I was trying so hard to like be normal be cool. Play it cool. <laughs> not just like, like, ah, yes, everything you say is amazing, <laughs> which it was. But like, I was like trying to keep a straight face. Like, hmm, very interesting. Like, right, that, that right, right. <laughs> that's funny. So that's a great, great story you have there. I love that. And so, you know, you worked at Dig. What happened after that? I know you also worked at Path. How did you transition from Dig to Path? So I had a job at Apple in college where I was in charge of campus marketing for my school. And my boss, while I was there, was Dave Morin. And Dave, 
worked in Apple, like corporate Cupertino. I was still a college student at the time. And then he became one of the first and earliest employees of the Facebook back when it was called that. Actually, we have IM logs from back in the day before he worked at Facebook, where I was like, I'm trying to find an in at the Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is one of my fraternity brothers from different school. I'm trying to find an in. I just found the contact information for his dad's dentistry office. And then Dave finally responded. He's like, I'm in. I'm, I'm flying out and, and meeting with Dustin next week, uh, Mark's, Mark's co-founder. And then he later was one of the first people to join the Facebook. And coming out of there, after he spent his time there, he was starting a new company with Sean Fanning and Dustin Miro, so the Napster founder. And then, and then Dustin, one of the most talented designers in, in the world. And the three of them were starting the stealth company pretty much to take down Facebook, which was super intriguing and exciting. And so Dave, Dave recruited me and I was one of the first few people to join PATH. That's awesome. And so what were some of the biggest things that you learned, the biggest takeaways from that experience? So I'd say some of the biggest learnings, I'll, I'll quote, quote Kevin Rose here, who got in trouble for, for saying this, but it's something that, that's really stuck with me. So kind of going back to dig for a second, is one of the things that Kevin was asked once, what was the downfall of Dig? Why did Dig fail in the end? Because Dig back in the day was was cooler and more interesting than Reddit. And obviously Dig died and Reddit is amazing. And I'm a massive fanboy of, of Reddit now. It's a wonderful product. And Kevin was asked like spot blank, what happened? And he said, I stopped interviewing engineers and A players hired B players, B players hired C players. And that continued. Kevin actually got in a lot of trouble for this. So sorry to bring this up again, Kevin. But uh, because people started posting in the, the, the Dig Mafia Facebook group, like, oh, I guess I was one of those C players. Thanks, Kevin. Oh, right. <laughs> but, but anyway, that, that, that advice really stuck with me. And to this day, Nikhil and I, even though June is part of Weber now, we still interview every single person. Both of us, wow. every single person that enters the June world or the connected devices world at Weber, the kill and I have to meet every single person. And it's so, so, so important. So that's, that's a lesson that's, that's stuck with me. And again, I don't know that I necessarily agree with Kevin. I don't think I was close enough to engineering to, to know if that's true. So no offense to all the, the C players potentially listening to this. I love all my friends at dig, but it, it did stick with me. And it's something that the kill and I have focused on a lot to be super, super involved in recruiting. What is your framework for filtering for these top A players? Good question. So on, on the tactical side, we do a lot of very tactical screening. We sometimes have challenges, quizzes, things like that before people even make it beyond just a phone screen. But by the time you make it to Nikhil and I, we're, we're usually just kind of the, the culture check, mm-hmm. not diving into too deep of tactical or or deep questions, but we like to make ourselves available and answer questions and be there to be supportive. And I honestly, it's something that I often say is like, if you make it to me and Nikhil, great. Like you probably won't get rejected by Nikhil and I, but, uh, but you made it this far. Congratulations. It's very, very hard to get an offer at June. And so something that we take great pride in and something that we work really, really hard to maintain is that really high bar. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hurt us at times. Like in the early, early days when we were recruiting mechanical engineers, product designers, unless the engineer at the time had kind of spent time at Apple or Tesla, 
they didn't seem to be meeting that bar. And I, I swear it's not just a brand bias. Like it was, it was coming through, like we were meeting very talented engineers from different places. And so we, we kept delaying, we kept not giving offers until we found our first mechanical engineer, Nico, uh, on the PD side, who spent time, a lot of time at Apple and GoPro. And then kind of, we had our first, and then we were able to bring in one of his friends and kind of it, it goes from there and continues to flow. And so kind of that patience and waiting really paid off in something like that. I'm glad you said that because I think that's something really important. I think that there's so much urgency in hiring quickly to get moving. You know, you're trying to build a company, especially in the really early days. There's a huge pressure. You just don't, I think as a founder, you feel like I just don't have time. I need someone in the seats. I need to fill it and we need to just roll out. And if it doesn't work, I'll just cut them out and we'll, I'll start over and it's fine, but at least we'll maybe get something done. And I just think it's tough for a lot of founders to make that choice to just say, let's wait to find the right person and make sure that it's an A player, like you're saying. So what other, you know, after half, what happened from there? So Nikhil and I spent a lot of time at Path and we loved working together. We, we actually were, were working on this stealth project within Path kind of without the, the founder's permission. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dustin. <laughs> where, where the we truth had comes some, out. We, we, no, they, they know. Uh, <laughs> we we, we had, had some ideas around how we could monetize Path, a social network that was just laser focused on growth. Like the, at a board level, all that mattered was getting more and more people using the app and, and sharing sharing photos and their moments. And Nikhil and I were like, wait, time out. We should make money. We should have like a built-in business model, maybe a monthly subscription program. Maybe we'll charge for virtual goods. And there was a lot of resistance to this. And so Nikhil and I kind of went rogue. Nikhil was like, I could build this. Matt, you could close some partnerships. We could get some interesting virtual goods going. And we didn't have any design resources. So my summer business intern also coincidentally happened to be a designer. What a coincidence. Thank, thank <laughs> you, Alice Lee, who's a super, super talented designer and, and illustrator. And we were able to, to mock this up and build an early prototype and showed it to the founders. And they were like, cool, great, let's ship this. And so oh, wow. nice. you literally could put like South Park stickers or Star Trek stickers and we charge for these virtual goods. And so we, Nikhil and I loved working together and we were spending lots of time together just thinking like, okay, what would starting a company look like? And we were totally open-minded to what type of space we might enter. And we just had to make money day one. That was our requirement. Like the day we announced that we're doing, we're taking a credit card and we are collecting money. And so we did that. And where we kept going back to is we didn't know us about each other, but we both had a mutual passion for cooking. And we'd start to get late and we were brainstorming ideas and we'd start with very simple meals, start with like egg waffles just because we're starving and they're frozen and they're easy. But then we'd start with more elaborate meals. I remember one time we were stuffing Cornish game hens and stuffing the, the limes in the, in the cavity and my wife came home. She says, what, do you, what are you two doing? aren't you supposed to be working on your business idea? Why, why are you stuffing Cornish game hens? And we're like, we think we're onto something, sweetie. <laughs> and for us, as soon as we kind of delved into this kitchen space, we couldn't unsee it. We looked at the oven that we had in the apartment at the time. And we looked around the industry, just Googling innovation. And it seemed like the only innovation was veneers on the outside. 
kind of different jewelry and nicer handles when for us, the type of products we love, and Nikhil had spent a lot of time at Apple. He worked on iPhone one through five, iPad one and two. He's on the patents for Panorama, tap to focus, instant shutter, working on the camera. And the thoughtfulness of an Apple product, that level of thoughtfulness didn't exist by anyone in the kitchen space. And so we said, why not us? And we had no idea what we were doing. We still, I believe, don't have anyone on our team who's really ever worked on an appliance before. <laughs> really? That's crazy. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And we, we actually saw that as a competitive advantage because we were able to look at the entire industry with, with fresh eyes and a fresh perspective. And in the early days, our entire mechanical team was, was from Apple. Today, it's a mix of, of Apple and, and Tesla and some other places. But it was really important to us to come to the industry with a fresh perspective and to be very thoughtful. And from the moment that we decided we're going to put a camera in an oven, we're not going to have it melt, we're going to recognize the most commonly cooked foods and cook them perfectly every time, it was pretty insane that we thought we could will this into existence. And all the odds were mostly against us. And somehow we, we winged it, figured it out one step many thousand step journey to actually shipping a product that did those things. When was the moment where you were like, wow, these odds are really stacked against us? Like, you know, I'm sure you felt it quite a bit. Was there ever a point where you were feeling like, what am I doing right now? <laughs> there are many times. So when we raised our, our first seed round of funding, which I thought would be pretty easy, I was mm -hmm. like, look, Nikhil's the brilliant Apple inventor. I'm just insane. It's a good combo, right? Both great resumes, and, though. You're right. So it should be fairly easy to raise. And I remember my first like real venture capital. I did two venture capital pitches at the same time. And I was like, okay, one is like my easy shoe in. Like they're they're gonna have to love this. And then the other one is like, I know them really well and I'm praying that they give us money. And so I'm I remember I get the first phone call from the the easy, the shoe-in, like my, my safety school is, is uh -huh. like the way to think about it. They're like, yeah, Matt, we're out. And I'm just like, <gasps> right. They're like, wait, like, shit, that's so not what I thought they were going to say. Yeah, that you, 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 you were, I was supposed to not want you, not the opposite. Like what, what is going on here? Well, why did they say that? What went wrong or what, yeah, what happened? Well, so this, this was just when it, we had nothing to share. Like literally we had some early industrial designs. We had no oven. There was no demo. And we were trying to raise a decent amount of money just based on our team and our, our crazy ideas. And then I think it was two days later, I get a phone call from, from Rob Hayes at First Round Capital. And I'm like, oh man, now we're going to get our second no. And then we have to reevaluate everything. Like, what are we doing here? And we've raised $0 at this point. We have $0 in our bank account. And then Rob says, Matt, so we know you, Nikhil seems smart, and you're insane, but we're in. I was oh. Like, oh, oh my goodness. And so thank you, Rob. Thank you, first round. Thank you, Josh. And, uh, and then so they, they were in. And then that, that round was actually one of two easy rounds to raise. The others were hard. I'll, I'll tell another story. So that, that round got raised. We raised a, a $7 million seed round. That's a lot there. for a seed round, especially with out a product but i know it's hardware it, so that's like a is. whole nother ball game yeah but that's not enough money to ship 
that's enough money to like build a prototype. That's not even enough money to ship to customers. Wow. Hardware is, is expensive. Definitely. And so fast forward, we launch our pre-order campaign. So this was a crazy whirlwind of, of a couple of weeks. So it's June 9th, 2015. And my wife and I, we have, have no kids at the time. And we've been struggling with fertility stuff going on. And we're going through IVF. And the doctor says like, okay, like we've created this moment in time that is the perfect moment to put the embryo in. That day is June 9th at I think it was six o'clock in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, set whatever it started. And that was our launch day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Launching two things at once. All right. <laughs> yes. And so I remember we had like the embargo break the East Coast in the office. We're all really excited. And we're, we literally wouldn't tell anyone that we were working on a kitchen appliance at that point. And the whole team was in the office. We had like the champagne toast at five o'clock in the morning or wh whenever that was. And then in my June t-shirt, I had to go to do the thing to where embryo was being put in. Amazingly, yeah. that worked for the record. That's All right. our, our, first, Congrats. our first child, Sadie. So thank you, Sadie. I'll, I'll always remember that date. Yeah. And, and then we had amazing press and pre-orders came in and our, our pre-orders were, were okay. What's okay mean? Yeah, we, we, we haven't announced that number, but it wasn't like, like they were good. People were like able to nod their head. Like, yes, there's proof here that this, that people want this thing, but there was none of that. Oh my goodness. Like you'll never be able to make enough. You have the next big thing. Like it was not entirely clear, if that makes sense. Hmm. So is that like a couple hundred orders, less than a hundred orders? How many do you think per month is like a, a decent signal? So I remember the advice that I, the most interesting and actually horrible advice that I received was from, so there was a company at the time called Tilt that was running all these pre-order campaigns. So like if you wanted to kind of create your own Kickstarter type of thing, but didn't want to be actually on Kickstarter. So we, we use that. And the data that scared Nikhil and I to make us realize that things were like okay to good and were not great is he said, oh, well, here's all, how all pre-order campaigns work. You take however many pre-orders you get in the first three days when you're like, oh my goodness, we're amazing. We're crushing it. When you get all that press and excitement and virality and everyone's sharing it. He's like, take those three days and then double that. And that's your first month. <laughs> so uh, when, you, when it's those first three days, you're like, we are awesome. If we just do this every day forever, we will take over the world. And I remember we had a launch party with the team and everyone's freaking margaritas and having a blast. And Nikhil and I are like a little bit unhappy because we know because it was three days. Exactly. We're like, this is all of our sales is just going to be double this. Mm. Like if we continue this every day, we'll be great. But we knew that data that it was. And by the way, the guy was right. He was totally right. Interesting. So now, so now fast forward, it's time to fundraise. Because like I said, $7 million for a product like ours was not enough money to ship. So we had to fundraise. And I've never told this story before, but we had enough runway. We had a couple months of runway. So I, I wasn't too stressed about, at the time, running out of money. And then 
our largest investor, Foundry Group, uh, Jason Mendelson, who Foundry Group, so incredible. Jason, we would not be here without Jason and we would not be here later without Brad who, who joined us. But one of the amazing things that Jason said to us was that they wrote a $5 million check into the first seed round. So Jason said, hey, he told me long before, he's like, we're in for 5 million for the next round. And so you can use that to help your pitch to go find your lead investor for the series A. And it's like, that was amazing for me to go in with that credibility of like, oh yeah, Foundry Group's in for 5 million, Foundry Group's in for 5 million. And I was able to say that in all of my pitches, like it made it, the intro conversation so yeah amazing That's because ridiculous. there was this validation of an incredible firm like Foundry. Yeah. So that was like my best talking point when I was pitching to do this. And so anyway, a few months go by, no term sheets. We had a few few small like dollar commitments, but no one was cutting us a term sheet to raise the round. And like I said, this was just a pre-order campaign we made it to at this point. So you're saying you were using, you're leveraging that $5 million from Foundry and people maybe said they were interested, but then weren't pulling the trigger. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. So maybe it was easy to get like a 100K check or 250K check or 50K check. Mm-hmm. But to like lead around, we would need someone ideally to write a check larger than $5 because we'd want to raise maybe a $20 million round or something like that and then fill in the rest. How much were you raising in that round? I believe we were saying 20 to 30 is what we were going to the market with. And the founder is going to do five of that. Yeah. And so there was a point when I, someone from our outsourced payroll team reached out and they were like, Hey, let's talk about payroll. You're going to make payroll next month. Right. Because you're going to run out of money soon. I'm like, Oh no, it's, it's fine. Like, you know, foundry group is they're in for five in the next round. And so, and like we, we were in diligence at that time. We just didn't have a term sheet. and. So I call up Jason. I'm like, hey, hey, Jason. So, you know, you said you spot me that five, right? So you know, can we... <laughs> He's like, spot? No, that's not. <laughs> and so Uh-oh. I was like, cool. I was like, okay, well, this is a payroll thing that I haven't thought about. I'm not worried about. But like, you know, can you, can you please wire the money? And he said to me, Matt, I'm not going to give you a bridge to nowhere. You need a lead for this round. And we are in. I have not changed my story at all but I'm not just going to give you $5 million because that's not enough money to ship. And mm. so you need to raise this round and figure it out. That was like the first moment when like, there's this like founder problem, I'll call it, of this cannot fail, of the blinders on that you can always go through walls and figure it out. And that was like the first time I was kind of torpedoed down from like my, I'll call it my ego, maybe is the right word mm. to describe it of wait really i might not be able to make payroll like in two months what like it literally was unfathomable until jason said that to me and that's pretty scary and that's a lot of money to raise in a short amount of time totally that's scary totally and so i remember being freaked out and luckily what do you do when you're freaked out do you like pace do you go on a run like how do yeah when you're like freaking out, how, do you, who do you call? What do you, what do you, what's your response? Yeah, that's a good question. So I always pace, even if I'm not freaked out. So I wouldn't <laughs> call it a symptom of freaking out. It's actually this tight confined phone booth actually prevents me from pacing too much. But so I, I used to pace a lot more, but uh, I, I usually call my best friend, Logan, Logan Green, who's the, uh, the CEO of Lyft often 
talk things out with him. We've been best friends since we were 12 or 13. And then one of my other really good friends, uh, Justin Miller, the, the founder of Pillow, which sold to Expedia and now has a new company called Showplace. And I'll just be like, okay, help me solve this problem. And they're both insane entrepreneurs too. And so they kind of understand the madness of this world and some great people that I'm very lucky and fortunate to be able to bounce ideas off of. Who did you call when this specific thing happened and, and you were in this payroll crunch and trying to raise you know $20 million basically in a month? So who did you call and what happened? I have no memory, probably both. And they probably just said, hey, you're, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. That, that's my guess, <laughs> oh, but I really God. have no memory. <laughs> and then we were able to pull it off. We got this amazing PO from, from Amazon that wanted to buy a lot of ovens. And we met this uh, incredible entrepreneur himself, Lior Susan, who was, was also my age. And again, I'm 30, how old am I? I don't even know how old I am. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm 37. Uh, 36 is um, I think I'm 37. Oh uh, yeah, I'm and, 36 and I always, I'm like, I have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I feel <laughs> like I used to know. There's I too know. many digits now. Right. The older you get, you just start forgetting too many birthdays. You're like, what was the one, last one I celebrated? I forget. <laughs> I don't celebrate anymore. So maybe that's why I don't remember. <laughs> totally. And Leor's, Leor's my age and we've been doing June for about eight years. And so he was, I think, you know, we were probably both like 31, 32 we started working. I'm like, who is this kid that like started his own? I'm, I still thought I was a kid back then when I was 31. Now I've graduated from kid. I think I'm pretty old for Silicon Valley. <laughs> but I was like, who is this kid that runs his own venture capital firm? And he's amazing. And he's a hardware AI expert. And uh, he got what we did and he loved it. And then he joined our board and was completely instrumental across the, you know, the whole next seven years of, of June. And we were very fortunate and lucky to, that we got to work together. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. 
I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. June, you know, was acquired. What was that process like? What has it been like as a founder being acquired? So something that was really interesting about the June Weber deal was it started many years earlier when they cold reached out to us to try and work together. Wow. So I got a, a cold email from, from Jim Steven. I actually, on the, on the IPO day, I actually posted it on my Instagram for the first time, but I'll try from memory to remember the, the basics of it. This Matt, I don't know if you know who I am, but my company, we make grills. And <laughs> my dad helped invent the, the first charcoal grill. And I helped invent the modern gas grill. And I love my June oven. I have to meet you. And uh, he's like, it could be mutually beneficial for me to fly out next week. I'm like, what? Who sends emails <laughs> like this? And it's like sent from iPhone. I'm like, who is this guy? And wow. He's like in his kitchen with your oven, just like texting, messaging you. And it, we it's, should meet. it's the, uh, at the time, the, the CEO and chairman of Weber. And I remember I, I screenshotted that email long before I had met with them. And I showed it at all hands to the whole company. I was like, look, they think we're interesting. How cool is this? And I don't remember this, but apparently multiple wit- witnesses claim that I said, look, the CEO of Weber thinks we're cool. <laughs> Weber. <laughs> I swear I would know Weber. Definitely familiar with the brand, but apparently at all hands, I said Weber. And so I think two days later, Jim flies out and he tells me that he can't imagine a future without June technology on Weber products. Wow. And I'm like, okay, all right, slow, slow down, Turbo. Like, what are we even talking Turbo. about here? <laughs> right. And we had been working on a product that, so the product that powers the June ovens today, we had actually been talking with other people in the oven space about licensing our operating system. You imagine on a big oven or on a stovetop or that sort of thing. But we hadn't been thinking about it for the grill space. And so Jim was like, yeah, well, you should uh, you should work with us and not not those other oven people. You definitely should work with Weber. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. And then next thing we know, start having conversations, get introduced to some of the Weber board members from BDT, Byron and and Bill and, and Justin. And then next thing we know, we have a, a term sheet. And wow. they led our Series C round of funding. And we partnered with them to build a series of smart grills, which are now shipping. It's crazy. Wow. Uh, you can actually ship stuff in three years. It's kind of cool. 
And so even though we just got acquired in January, we've already shipped smart grills together, which is wonderful. Wow. That's funny. And then months later, Chris Scherzinger joined as the CEO of Weber and got to know Chris really well and been wonderful. How did it switch from them being, you know, an investor in a series C round to acquiring? So it started last last summer and the conversation said like, hey, maybe we should someone someone on the Weber side, board side said like, hey, maybe this should be a, a different conversation. And then we we started talking. And I think one of the most wonderful things about it is we both knew what we were getting ourselves into. But what's the incentive, I guess? I'm curious just what the incentive is, because as a partner and they've already, you know, you guys have partnered on numerous products, I guess. Now, what's the incentive to go even deeper? It seems like there's already mutual benefit, even just as like kind of a partnership as them as an investor. What was something that kind of brought it over the line? Yeah, I mean, I think for if I can can speak for myself in June, you know, Mm -hmm. the the opportunity to be able to learn from the, the marketing engine that is is Weber and distribution marketing sales is is fascinating. So June product's incredible. Average customer uses it two and a half times a day. Once you have this thing on your countertop, you don't use your big oven anymore. You rarely use your stovetop. But for us, we're still small. We're still very, very small. And we need a lot of help getting the word out there. And so it's very clear with, with Weber's ability to move product that there's a ton to be learned there. And so that that was super, super appealing to me. And then as you think through, you know, how much of, of my time, we've told a lot of fundraising stories, right? The amount of time that I'm able to dedicate to and Nikhil's able to dedicate to, like it's it's always the worst when Nikhil, who's one of the most brilliant product people in the world, has to spend a decent amount of his time fundraising because I need more backup and legitimacy because I haven't been able to get the round done yet instead of being focused on product that being able to have that that singular focus is super super important yeah and june was was not a a profitable business and so we're reliant on funding when will it be profitable do you know (laughs) nothing to to talk about there so talk to me about lyft can you share your story absolutely so back in college so logan and i we're, we were supposed to go to Cuba and we found a legal, you couldn't go to Cuba at all the time. It's completely illegal. So and we what like, year was this? Forbidden fruit. This like 2007? Oh, 2004. Oh, wow. 2004. And you couldn't go legally. And we wanted to figure out how to go legally. We weren't trying to like just get in trouble. And so we found this way that we were going to do something specific to journalism. So there were journalism exceptions for visiting visa we want to do something for the jewish community of cuba and we had this whole thing figured out and then my mom freaks out and says what if you get in trouble what if you get arrested like u.s government can't help you in cuba blah 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 so she bribed me with by paying for my flight my dad was was working on a, a tv show in south africa at the time he's like i'll pay for your flight to south africa if you go there instead <laughs> i was like all right you can bribe me that's fine they're probably worse places in the world than, than South Africa. And so uh, I don't, Logan didn't get hooked up by that. So thank you, Logan, for paying for a more expensive flight yourself. <laughs> but anyway, so we, we were in Southern Africa backpacking for over a month. And we were actually camping in different parts of Africa. 
We were in Namibia, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, Logan noticed that we, we noticed that no one was driving a car unless every seat was filled and everyone was paying gas money. And it was like, even like to go like to the airport, like we would get in a taxi and they would then go to someone's house to fill up just enough gas to get to the airport. It was because the economy was in such a bad place then in Zimbabwe, but the efficiency was amazing. And it just got us thinking like there's so many empty seats in cars, especially in Los Angeles, right? Where it's such a commuter city. And you just look out your, your window and look at the street and you're like, okay, three empty seats, four empty seats, three empty seats, four empty seats, three empty seats, four empty seats. And we said, how through software and uh, a product experience, could we fill those empty seats in cars? And this was been Logan's baby. He's always been a, a transportation geek. And we would always start little web companies and, and projects. This was just another web company little it wasn't cool to call it a company back then it's just like we're gonna make a website <laughs> yeah and so this was just another web thing we were gonna make and uh, so it's called zimride named after zimbabwe and we launched it and we're our biggest competition at the time was craigslist and so people would go on craigslist and be like hey i'm driving from la to las vegas who wants to share a ride and that felt not too safe. And so for us, we were one of the first partners to work on the Facebook platform. So we were one of the original Facebook Connect partners where you could log in with Facebook and actually use your Facebook credentials to show that you're legitimate or friends in common, et cetera. Actually at the first F8 conference, which was Facebook's first ever developer conference, the person who ran that was Dave Morin, my boss from Apple, who later was my boss at Path. And so he was able to help get us in there, which was nice. great. But but back then, we, so 2000, I graduated 2006, so we did Africa in 2004. And then after school, it was like, okay, now we either need to raise money and like pay ourselves, or I should probably go get a job and like start a career or something. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, I was cold reaching out to investors, trying to get people to take a meeting and pretty much no one would meet with us. And people laughed at us and kind of, it felt like there was this like, hey, you kids didn't go to Stanford. You didn't work at Google. Like, who who are you? Are you cash flow positive? Are you profitable? We're like, no, look, we have hundreds of users here. We have thousands of users over here. And look, they're carpooling. Check out. It's a sweet, <laughs> it's a sweet experience. And this is way before June, just to clarify, because I think we're going a little backwards in the story. So yeah, yeah, this is, this is, yeah. this is the beginning. This yeah. Is, this is like 2006. 2007. And then from there, I mean, we got one cold email from this guy who was a director of finance at eBay. And he's like, hello, I, I want to invest in your startup. And Logan and I are just like, like, like no one wants to guy? invest in our startup. Like what? This feels like, like a prank. <laughs> and so I remember Logan was like, okay, we have to meet him at a public place. We're going to meet him at a Togo's in Fremont. And hopefully he doesn't like take our wallets or something. Right. And we go and meet with this guy, and he's super cool, super awesome guy. His name's Sean Argawal. And we, we start talking, and he's like, yes, I, I want to invest. How did he discover you guys? I think he'd been spent, I don't know this exactly, but I think he'd been spent, he really liked the carpooling space as a concept, and he looked at a few of the players out there and liked 
the execution of Zimrite at the time. And so he became our first investor. Wow. And and then I'll, I'll tell my story and then I'll talk about Sean again. And then kind of right around then, I was like, okay, like, Logan, this this is your baby. You're the biggest transportation geek I know. Like, I was just along for, for the ride. No pun intended. <laughs> I think I need to to go learn from other entrepreneurs before I go and do something crazy again. I, I don't want to be an outsider the next time that I fundraise, like we're outsiders right now. And so Logan then spent, I want to say it's the next two and a half to three years without any funding beyond Sean's funding and some friends and family before Zoomride was able to raise that first $1.5 million seed round led by, by Floodgate and K9. And then obviously Zimride became Lyft and they, I think the early names for it was Zimride Instant or real-time Zimride of mm-hmm. people. So at the time there was Uber black cars, but there was nothing else when Lyft launched originally. And so we had people driving their own cars, which was like an insane concept back then. Right. Right. And yeah. And then obviously Lyft worked out. All right. I want to know who came up with the pink mustache and, and why you guys decided that was a great idea. Because obviously it worked really well. But if anyone would have come to me with that idea, I'd be like, you're nuts. That's never going to work. <laughs> yeah. So my, my understanding of that story is, is there, there's this guy, Ethan Eiler, who started this company called Carstash, which he's kind of this like crazy inventor guy. And he was not working at Lyft at the time. And I, I don't know if it was John Zimmer or Logan or who, who knew him, but for the launch, they were like, hey, can we can we get some car stashes? This will be fun. <laughs> and then fast forward, he now works at Lyft and like built the next generation. There was like that tiny little like pink light up one for a while. That was pretty cool. And so they've done a lot of iterations on it over time. And it's been pretty fun to see. So what was your involvement with Lyft? Yeah, so I was in the beginning just with Logan until I got my first job at Dig and then I stayed a, a advisor since then. And, uh, you know, it's been Logan's baby since the beginning. And I'm so proud that he kind of took it from that point. I remember to not have that like validation of like a real investor to like literally get a paycheck to go that two and a half years, three years that Logan did just based on his conviction, all the power to him. It's so, so incredible. But he, he just had that vision of like, I have to make this thing exist and make this work. Absolutely. What are some of the, you know, I know we've gone through some challenges, but especially with June specifically, kind of going back there, what was one of your most challenging moments? I know we talked about fundraising, but I think also, you know, there's so many things, whether it's hiring or product development, there's so many things that can go wrong during a product launch or when did something go wrong and you had to figure it out and and recover from it? Man, so many things have gone wrong. I think one of the the interesting things is like how much winging it there is along the way. And so in the beginning, when it was just Nikhil and I, we were like, okay, great. Now, how do we make a thing? How do we make hardware? Do we know anyone that doesn't anything with hardware? We're like literally like, you know, if we, if we didn't know a few people, we'd probably just be going in the phone book, like Google, like if there was yeah. no Google to be out there or relationships, like, Okay, let's go in the phone book and look for uh, hardware. Great, they do hardware manufacturing in this place. Let's call this number. Like that, that's kind of what it felt like back then. And there was this Irish fellow named uh, Liam Casey 
founder of a PCH who was known as Mr. China. There were articles about him being Mr. China and he ran this product development. And I believe it felt like a manufacturing company at, at the time. And he was super involved in Beats by Dre and um, lots of Apple products and accessories. And we got, we got introduced by my old boss from Dig, Kevin Rose, introduced us. And Nikhil and I were super hush about telling people what we were doing. I don't know why we were so crazy and so paranoid that like, what if the idea came out that we're making a kitchen appliance? And so we were like over the top secretive. And we met this you know, Irish dude in San Francisco named Liam. And for some reason, we just, maybe we were vulnerable. Maybe we were desperate. Maybe we had no idea what we were doing. All these things were true for the record, but we still had, we had ego back then. So like we had that working in our favor, maybe, but we, we just, we felt like we trusted him. Even though we just met him, just shook his hand and seemed legitimate. And we kind of poured our heart out for what type of first product we want to make and types of products we want to make. And he's like, I get it. You're going to build the Apple of appliances. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sorry for the, the, the Irish accent. The voiceover. <laughs> and then from there, Liam had someone on his team fly out with us to China and we toured appliance factories where we saw toaster ovens being made on the line and got to spend time with Liam in China and kind of learned this whole crazy world. And uh, he sent an introduction to Matt Rollinson and Bob Brunner at Ammunition Industrial mm-hmm. Design Shop. They had partners together on on Beats, and uh, Bob Brunner started Apple's Industrial Design Group. He actually hired Johnny Ive into Apple, and then later started his own firm, Ammunition. And then, just based on that like warm intro from Liam, who now seemed to like Nikhil and I at the time, I know he likes us now, but he seemed to at the time, and sent that introduction. And suddenly, we're meeting with the guy who hired Johnny Ive and one of the greatest industrial designers in the world, and he said that he got it and then they wanted to help us. And at this point we'd raised no money too. And so from there, they started working with us and we got to meet Jonas on the industrial design side and started working together and thinking through what this thing would look like and feel like, cause I wanted to be able to have a nice visual before we ever pitched an investor. And so we actually had very, very early designs thanks to ammunition before we'd ever entered a pitch meeting. And so we kind of had this little bit of legitimacy and the kind of this weighing it from intro to intro to intro to intro we just kept doing that for eight years and somehow ended up here (laughs) that's hilarious when you think of success and if you were to put it into a pie chart what percentage do you think is luck oh man a lot like 90 percent, 99 percent. i don't know i think i think a lot of it is not, not so much the luck but surviving long enough to get your timing right Mm. when so back to that that date june 9th 2015 the world was not ready for a smart oven Mm -hmm. at all (laughs) how did you know that how they know they weren't ready yeah how did you crush in our sales (laughs) crushing our sales as much as (laughs) i wanted to um but it was it was just too early people were skeptical like and if there people had been smart like locks and doorbells were kind of starting but they were super early and they're they're just what people weren't that dependent on smart products i forget exactly when alexa came out but i remember i was in the second june office when i got the first beta alexa so that was like we were working on the product long before alexa even existed 
I started working in the company before Nest got acquired. And, you know, there's a lot of this is just not dying and not running out of money before your moment can happen. And timing is everything. Go with Dig, for example, right? Reddit is huge now. Right? Yeah. It was tiny then. Dig was the big one <laughs> back then. And it's you know, been, guys, I started working at Dig in 2007, right? So what is that, 15 years? Mm-hmm. Right? It's been 15 years since I was working at Dig. And Reddit was around back then, too. And so Reddit is as big as it is now, 15 years later, which is completely insane. And is now worth the, the billions of dollars and is you know, one of the most important web pages on the internet. And so just lasting long enough and executing, I think, is is really, really important. Lasting long enough. I, I think that's such an interesting topic though, right? Because there's a there's a mindset of fail fast, right? Like just get out while you can. And then there's the mindset of keep going, keep going. And I think, you know, there's the mindset of what you're saying, which is like keep going as long as you believe that there's an out for you or there's a success at the end. There's a rainbow at the end of your tunnel in your journey, right? Totally. How do you think about that? I think I think it relates back to ego. I expect you're talking about ego so much in this this conversation, but I, I guess I used my ego used to be here. There's no visual here, but it's really high, and now I've uh-huh. been, been beaten down enough times where it's uh, some somewhat neutralized. But uh, a, a lot of it relates to ego. Like if you would have asked Nikhil and I back when we were just the two of us on a couch, and we hadn't been rejected by any venture capitalists yet. Matt, would you ever pitch an old school, boring, big oven company and say, hey, do you want to use our software? The, the bright, bushy-eyed, like, perfectionists back then would have said, no, we're not talking to those companies. <laughs> right. And like, but as you learn, as you evolve, as you learn your market, as you learn your value, and I think one of the, the wonderful things about meeting Weber because we probably would have worked on a big oven with one of those companies. Uh, one of the wonderful things about working with Weber is we had similar values. We appreciated great engineering. We appreciated quality products, quality product experiences. But most importantly, all that matters is great food. And that didn't feel true with anyone else in the industry. Was mm. that kind of all that matters is, is great food and great engineering and great product. And so we were very, very lucky that even from a partnership perspective, forget the whole acquisition thing, that's even from a partnership perspective, it was very wonderful and very lucky. Back to luck again. And, and lasting long enough to get some luck <laughs> that Jim Steven bought a June oven because he saw it on the internet while looking for something. <laughs> and But lasting long enough to realize that there could be other options out there. And so for us, for Nikhil and I, kind of the, the learning fast, you know, we realized quickly that back to those kind of early sales that again, were, were good, but not great, was like, we may need to be creative here. We can't just bank off of, we're just going to sell all the ovens of all time until there are no more households left in the world. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, holding on and holding on. Do you think there was, was there ever a point where you're like, I don't know if we should hold on anymore? No, but it felt like at times that the market was deciding that relative to not being able to fundraise at times. So kind of the 
if I were to kind of talk through like the, the June funding history, which I, I know we're talking about fundraising too much, sorry, I'm just battle scarred, but I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it to the, the seed round was, was pretty easy. The A, I told you, was rough. The B was even more rough. And then the C, which is the Weber-led round, was actually easy too, because we had this validation that there was this OS business right. and this amazing partner in Weber. Mm-hmm. And so like, but that valley, it's called the valley of the A and the B, that was rough. And again, it's that like, what if we can't make payroll? What if we have to reach out? Like at, at, at one point, one of my investors was like, hey, like you're, you have friends that like work at, uh, at Google, like we're not going to have to do this yet. But like, if you don't pull off around soon, you're going to have to, so Matt Rogers was one of the, the co-founders of Nest and he was a, a June investor. And uh, luckily I never had to have this conversation, but literally a, a board of our mind was like, hey, if you don't pull off this round, like you have to say like, hey, Matt, we're shutting down. We're going to sell the company. Bid start at $1. Look, I never had to have that conversation. I never had that conversation. But but it entered my mind. And one of my biggest investors told me that that could be a possibility if we weren't able to to pull off the round. And so that that's terrifying. That's scary. The reality is that happens 80% of the time. Totally. I mean, that's that's like whole nother podcast, but (laughs) Um, well listen you know i know we're running out of time thank you so much do you have any other final advice to entrepreneurs that are tuning in thinking about maybe taking the leap into entrepreneurship what advice do you have for them you have to have the right amount of blinders on to be able to just execute and because there's hundreds and thousands of reasons of why you shouldn't pursue the thing you're pursuing and so you need to have enough blinders on but every once in a while you gotta like look to the side and gut check yourself and make sure you're not, you're only like mostly insane, not like a hundred percent, you know, insane. So that's how I like to think about it. What percentage of insanity is it, is necessary? Do you think? Quantify it. Depends on the, depends on the, the project for, for Nikhil and I, we had to start an appliance company from scratch. We were like 99. Yeah. I think, right? So then what are you saying? You're like, oh, but you, I think you just contradicted yourself. <laughs> well, it depends on the complexity of the project. So the more complex, the more insane you need to be. That makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. And then I remember, and Andreessen Horowitz, which was not an investor in June, they, I, I'd heard about this, but I'd never seen it before. They're pretty famous, or they used to be, assuming they still are, for their rejection emails. What are they saying? So the the June ones, from memory, I haven't looked at it in solid seven years, but it was something of lines like, if you are able to reinvent the appliance category, that's really interesting. That will be a massive business. But for you to build an entire operating system and also figure out how to put a camera in an oven and not have it melt and turn that into a commercial success, that is a lot of ifs, but we're often wrong. So we're saying no right now. But if you are able to pull off all of these things, we would love to talk again. And it was right. like, <laughs> just in case they want to, they can never, investors can never shut the door completely. You know, it's like, <laughs> I have to leave the door open just in case, because I don't want to miss out <laughs> in case this works. <laughs> I, I love that rejection. You know, that actually made me happy. I think it's the only rejection I've ever been happy with. That's funny. 
Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your amazing, inspiring story. Really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. It's super fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.